It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to this special edition of World Weekly from the FT. I'm Gideon Rachman. I say special edition because it's a bit longer than usual. It's an edited recording of a discussion on populism and politics in Europe which we recorded here at the FT last week, on the day after the Dutch elections. The discussion was chaired by our deputy editor, Ruda Khalaf, and it featured me, as well as Simon Cooper, our Paris-based columnist, who grew up in the Netherlands, and Catherine Fieschi, who is a political consultant and a long-time observer of the far right in France. The discussion began with Ruda asking the panellists what they made of the Dutch election results. Gideon, shall we start with you? Give us your reading of the results. Well, I think that uh, clearly it was probably the most watched Dutch election in my lifetime because everybody's put it in the context of Trump and Brexit and Le Pen and so on. I mean, Simon knows the Dutch political scene much better than I do, but a friend of mine in the Netherlands sent me this email saying, it's not a complete rose garden. Rutter's Lib Lab coalition lost half, i.e. 79 to 42 seats. That's mainly because of the collapse of the Labour vote. At the same time, Wilders plus his extreme friends won half, i.e. 15 to 22 seats. So they did go up, and the, the mainstream did erode. And also on the fringes, another very interesting development he drew my attention to is that there's, you know, given the controversy around Turkey in the last few days of the election, yes. which probably helped Russia because he played it quite well, there's a sort of pro-AKP ethnically Turkish party which has made a breakthrough, won three seats, and which actually outpolled the Labour Party in Rotterdam and in The Hague and with, with civic elections coming up, that's also something to watch. But those are small qualifications. I mean, broadly, it means that Holland stays in the pro-EU mainstream. I think that the populists in Europe have a problem in that both Marine Le Pen and Wilders have two strands to their arguments, one of which is anti-immigration, which I think is the kind of rocket fuel behind them. But they've also adopted anti-EU and anti-Euro policies, which strike a chord with their kind of intellectual base, if you can call it that, because it's, it fits in with nationalism and sovereignty and all of that. Yeah. But I think working-class voters might be worried about abandoning the euro, what would that do to their savings and so on. So, on. so that's not a popular plank for them. Simon, what's your reading of the result? I mean, for once, it was totally predictable. It was exactly what all the polls said was going to happen, and Wilders slightly underperformed his last polls, and he always loses before an election. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure it has any lessons for anyone else, though, because I think France is a much more desperate country, is a much more nationalist country. And uh, we're looking at Le Pen getting 40% plus. You know, the populism in Holland is an old story. They've been around since 2002. They've never got 20%. I mean, Le Pen is just a much, much bigger thing. And the, you know, you're the point now that we always thought that populists had a certain ceiling and they have been able to break that ceiling? I don't know if they have in Europe. I mean, Trump obviously has, and Le Pen has raised the ceiling a bit, although people still say that the ceiling is probably yeah. about 35 40%. I mean, in Holland, there doesn't seem to be any indication that there's more than a small strand of the kind of angry white vote. 
And so Wilders says, I am the voice of the people. But he's, in fact, he's the voice of 13% of the people and doesn't seem to be able to get beyond that. And as Gideon says, this Europe thing, I mean, you know, the Brits have this insane fantasy of themselves alone bravely in the world. And some French people have this insane fantasy as well. But almost nobody in Holland has this insane fantasy because it's always been a small trading nation. And most of the Dutch economy is sending stuff into Germany by train and, uh, and port. So there just isn't an exit constituency in the same way there might be a Frexit one. Well, the political system is also very different. So there was never going to be a shock victory where Wilders actually rules, even if he'd done 30. Yeah, I'm just watching foreign journalism for once cover Holland, where I grew up, and in a time when politics was insanely boring, even by Dutch standards. And so watching foreign journalists, as Gideon says, for the first time ever pay attention to the Dutch election, but then have the wrong question, which is, can Wilders win? You know, what, what does that even mean? You can't win in a coalition election where you're targeting 20%. Catherine? I mean, I think I agree, in fact, with both of what my co-panelists have said. I think it was predictable, it was predicted. I think a number of uh, newspapers were reluctant to let go of a shock headline. So even the headline was, you know, uh, Wilders uh, on track for victory. And then, you know, and actually the article was all about how, in fact, he wasn't really pulling in the number of votes that one had expected. So were we writing too much about it? I don't think we were writing too much about it. But I think also we're all suffering from a slight overcorrection bias in the aftermath of Brexit and in the aftermath of Trump. I spend a lot of time in France working on issues related to Marine Le Pen and the Front National, etc. You know, and there's a kind of con duration going on that, you know, perhaps if we hold it in our mind's eye, then we can actually keep it at bay, sort of voodoo politics. But I think where the Dutch case is interesting and where there are lessons, paradoxically, and I don't want to take us away from the issue of populism, but where there are lessons is on the issue of fragmentation and particularly on the decline of the vote for traditional left-wing parties. Oh, we saw that L- Labour did so badly. Labour did very badly. Um, you know, in France, if you look at how the Socialist Party is doing, it's really no picnic. If you look at the number of votes that the Socialist Party is still able to draw on in France, they used to be able to draw on roughly you know, 40% of the working vote and working class vote. It's now down to base basically, you know, between 14 and 20. So I think that, yes, there is this populism, but there is this great fragmentation and recomposition of the electorate across our countries. The Dutch have a very particular institutional framework. They've been going through a long transition in terms of the way that the parties have recomposed and, you know, never really quite settled into a pattern, even since the 1970s, I would say, where you had these very defined blocks of Catholic voters, liberal voters, etc., which sort of exploded and then were never really reconquered properly by one politician or the other. And I think that that explains in part the fragmentation. But I also think that one of the things that explains a little bit the kind of big bang that we saw with Pimfertown and then afterwards Wilders is that Really, it's a series of politics that is in part born of trauma. We're talking about two murders, you know, the murder of him for town and then the murder of Theo van Gogh, which gave a kind of virulence to these movements in the Netherlands. And they've kept their virulence almost in their, in their spoken form, but actually it's not really translated in massive electoral form. The breakthrough, I mean, you had the two shock events. The first was September 11th and then mm. the murder of Pinfortown. It all happens within mm. nine months. Yep. September 11th happens, Fortown emerges in a country which had never had right-wing populism before. He's very, very entertaining. And then he's assassinated a few days before the election by a green activist 
lunatic. And um, that was a shock because whereas Britain and France and Italy are very experienced with political murder, you know, people, <laughs> yeah. get, people get knocked off periodically in these countries. Mm. You know, in the, in the peak days of the IRA, in France you have far-right death squads. Let's not even, you know, go to the Italian story. And in Holland there had not been a political murder, I think, since 1619 <laughs> when the brothers de Witt were torn apart by a mob in public literally torn apart. So this is a country which has enormously high expectations of of public safety, has no experience of violence. Mm. They don't even hunt in Holland. And so suddenly you have two very public murders. And so the anxiety induced by Mm. Islamic terrorism was greater even than in the rest of Europe. And so you get this populist movement. And Fortin breaks the taboo where he says says nasty things about Islam, which had been a a complete taboo, whereas in France you'd had a a far-right party doing that for decades. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that that issue of immigration, both in the Netherlands and in the rest of Europe, has still obviously got a long way to play out. I watched the election from a distance, but Rutte did, I believe, take out an an ad in in the the Dutch papers saying, you know, to immigrants, if you can't behave decently, go home. And Not just just to immigrants. (laughs) If you can't act normally, you should leave Holland. Right, but I think the message is fairly clear, yeah? Well, it's two sides, because it's A, I mean, yes, there's immigrant bashing there, but B, it's also the ASBO issue, which Blair raised in Britain 20 years Mm. ago, where we have a problem with jobs and we're going to give them ASBOs, and this is a big issue. That's now come to Dutch politics, so So we're just also talking about those Is it the equivalent of of May taking out an ad in the Daily Mail and saying to Muslim immigrants, you know, if you can't behave well, go back to Pakistan? Um... He didn't, well, he didn't quite. Yeah, he, he was a bit vague. And a, just such a huge difference between Britain and the other Western European countries is there is no Daily Mail, and that means that the whole <laughs> distortion of, of the political culture mm. by daily lies and racism mm. just doesn't happen in the same way. <laughs> um, I mean, even in France, where you know there, there was a so whole, that wasn't as extreme <laughs> an act by Rutte as, 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 as I'm trying it. No, I don't. I mean, but, it, it wasn't. But there asked, was a there, radicalization of, his, of his rhetoric, wasn't there? Yeah. yeah, and I, I mean, just looking ac- across the European spectrum, that immigration issue is ever-present, obviously with Germany, with the million refugees that came in. And we saw it with Brexit. You saw it with Brexit. I mean, I think that probably it was immigration that won it for them. And you'll hear it from both sides of the spectrum here that maybe actually it was Merkel's decision that was a terrible backdrop for the British referendum because it just brought this idea of, you know, refugees flooding into the country very much to the fore. France and the Netherlands are obviously fascinating... But also, if you look at Eastern Europe, in a way, populism's got further there. Poland, Hungary have populist governments. Slovakia, there's a neo-Nazi party with with the 10% of the parliament. In the Czech Republic, similarly, uh, we're likely to get a sort of Trump-like figure becoming prime minister by the end of the year. And the fear of refugees, bizarrely, in countries that don't actually have Mm. refugees, but maybe it's... uh, very homogeneity that makes them scared or something yeah. is a big issue. So Fico in Slovakia campaigned against the idea that Slovakia would take its share of refugees. The Poles have done similarly. And so it's a driving force across Europe. Certainly in terms of the voters of the Front National, they're a very mixed bunch now. I mean, they're differentiated in terms of their regional support, in terms of their age, even in terms of their religion. But if there is one thing that really they have in common is their attitude toward migration and immigration. That is absolutely the flagship. That and 
often levels of education are relatively predictive, but really what differentiates them quite starkly from all of the other voters is a particular resentment. Yeah, and I must say, I mean, that, that struck me very much when I watched Le Pen campaign in Paris in the last election, and she gave a sort of fairly conventional, actually left-wing speech on economics about nationalism, mm. etc., and the crowd were really sort of pretty bored until mm. the last ten minutes when she got onto immigration, and it was like a sort of rock band playing, you know, mm. suddenly playing all the songs that people mm. liked, and everyone went crazy, for, mm. you know, mm. sort of ditching their boring new material. So are we to blame Syria for the rise of the far right in Europe? Well, maybe for stoking up their key themes, but... They've been around far too long (laughs) for that. (laughs) I do think that Brexit might not have happened if you hadn't had the Paris and the Brussels attacks and the migrants, the refugees arriving in Germany within nine months of the Brexit vote. Mm -hmm. But one interesting thing that you see in France, Britain and Holland now is the rise of a pro-European, pro-openness movement. In Mm. Britain, it's the kind of Remain people, which you saw in Richmond, which, of course, is not a representative place. In France, it's Macron, (laughs) who says, you know, I love Europe, I love globalisation, I have nothing against Islam. And in Holland, a quarter of the vote went to D66 and Home Links, which are aggressively pro-European movements. D66 is in favour of multiculturalism. It's not something that any politician I've heard Mm. say in the last Mm. 15 years anyway. But do you see across Europe, is there such a thing as a profile of a far-right voter. We carried out precisely this kind of project in the run-up to the last European elections. And one of the things that you know we were very careful to say is that we call these people the reluctant radicals because, in fact, you know they often didn't exhibit the characteristics that you would expect either of somebody who's particularly radical in their politics or who's you know particularly far-right. It was a little bit a, a kind of wake-up call to say, you know, actually... This is about a much more ordinary voter, in fact, rather than a fringe voter. What they tended to share across Western Europe was lower levels of education. That's something that was still quite visible then. You know, according to the research that we're doing now, frankly, that's ebbing a little bit. It still tended to be more male than female, but that too is ebbing, and it'll be interesting to see how and whether the fact that Marine Le Pen is a woman, whether that obviously has an impact. Uh, Ebbing in the sense that they're breaking out of that base? And they're breaking out of their purely male yeah. base, which is something that the FN has been trying to do for decades, and that mm. seems to be happening. It also used to be that, for example, being a practicing Catholic, it was a high predictor of your voting on the right, but it was also a high predictor of the fact that you would never vote for the far right. There was also a high correlation between being a practicing Catholic and being slightly older. So, you know, it was hard to disentangle. Well, some of the Catholics now say that if they don't vote for... If Fillon's not yeah. in the second round, then they would go for Marine Then they Le Pen. would go for yeah. Marine Le Pen. So that's also really changing now. And it's also interesting because it tells us something about the way in which religion is being instrumentalized by many of these populist parties, which is to say that religion is no longer just about the practices or... It's about or, culture. But it's about culture well, which and identity. Which is very Steve yes. Bannon. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're seeing yeah. some of that. One of the oddities of the Dutch election is that the far right is strong in Catholic Holland, in former Catholic Holland, because these people had voted for the Catholic People's Party. And then when that kind of merged into Christian Democrat, they were kind of left without anything. And so they're the people most likely to go far right, which is because they didn't have the party anymore. So let's move on. Let's pivot to France. (laughs) What's your expectation for the first round, Gideon? Well, I can't say anything much much more intelligent than the polls, which suggest that 
Le Pen will probably get around 26%. She's been polling fairly consistently on that, and that that will probably put her marginally ahead of whoever comes second, and that will probably be Macron. But there have been some polls now showing Macron ahead in the first round, and he's clearly got momentum. So it looks like it'll be Macron versus Le Pen going through to the second round. As a human being, obviously, I want Le Pen to crash and burn, but as a journalist, I'd quite like her to have a bit of a run because it's a good story. So, you know, th- there is a danger that we talk up Le Pen because it's, uh, it's interesting. But I think that Macron has the momentum. My question mark about the second round is he's very untested. Mm. How will he stand up to two months of close examination? She is actually a pretty good television performer, I think. And in a way, he's the ideal opponent because... Unlike Rutter, who has moved to adopt, you know, to assuage some of these anti-immigrant themes mm. and so on, he's a globalist, he's a former banker. Um, well, it's Fillon who's moved to adopt some Absolutely, of and it, but he's yeah. destroyed himself through personal yeah. scandals. So, yeah, I mean, I would guess that, again, just going on the opinion polls, and if you look at them now, the highest the Pen's got up to is 44 against Fillon, I think against Macron, only 42, and the other polls show her down at 35, so it could be a real blowout for Macron. But given the performance of opinion polls, they haven't been that wrong, you know. I think in the run-up to Brexit, there were lots of opinion polls showing that we would leave, just people refused to believe them. They just said, oh, no, that's obviously wrong. Not in the last... No, the average showed, but the average had a very narrow uh, thing. And similarly, Trump, I mean, I know this because I was in Florida eight days before the vote, and this was before Comey came out and made his thing, and Trump was ahead in Florida by two points, even before the FBI intervention and Mm. so on, and it was close. Okay, the polls did say Hillary would win, but it wasn't as certain, I think, as we'd all felt, even looking at the polls. Whereas 60-40 in France, that's quite a big That's that's big, yeah. Yeah. I just thought of, uh, again, hanging on to the idea that you know, it's going to be exciting, is that <laughs> Le Pen, if Le Pen is well, up... she does a, have a narrow path to, to yeah. victory. If she's right. up to 42 or 43, yeah. that's within touching distance, yeah. I think. Simon? Well, I was going to say, Catherine, I think, wrote her PhD on the Le Pens, <laughs> where she spends a lot of time interviewing the father and has very bravely written an article saying that she puts the chance of them winning at no more than 10%. Yes, I didn't hedge my bets. And then I got a lots, lots of people tweeting at me saying, oh, Catherine Fieschi wrote a very brave article. I thought, oh, it's never good to be called brave. But I think that, first of all, there's an electoral system, a system of primaries followed by two rounds, right? You know, this is not an in or out uh, referendum. It's not, you know, the American elections. I just think that it's a very steep slope. And in order to actually make it, she really would have to make it on the first round, which would mean growing her electorate by 30%. I actually think that the polls are slightly underestimating her. We're running an awful lot of focus groups or having a lot of conversations that suggest that in a lot of communities, particularly communities where she has polled, you know, 35, 38, 40 percent, um, there's, a, there's a bit of a tipping point, right? At this point, people turn around and sort of say, well, you know, everybody around me is, is voting for Marine Le Pen. And so the, the growth of the vote, I think, in some of those communities is not going to be that linear growth that we've, that we've seen, but there could be tipping points. So I think it's being slightly underestimated. But having said that, I do think that the story is probably going to play out in a way that it doesn't make for good journalistic fodder, but, you know, actually preserves one of the democracies at the heart of Europe. I'd like to be more confident than that, because I live in Paris, and I have periodic conversations with my wife about, shall we sell our flat now rather than in June when it will have no value? But, um, 
what gives me hope and consolation is, as you know, in November 2015, we had the terrible terror attacks. In December 2015, there were the regional elections in France. Yeah. Nine regions. Le Pen was tipped to win two. And it was a much more somber mood even than now, because, you know, the terror attacks had happened. And, mm. and she won zero. But I think that, that, I think that that's where I would, uh, you know, I would caution, which is that... Um, do I think she's going to win the presidential elections? No. Do I think, you know, probably she's going to be beaten by Macron in the second round, although Fillon's not, you know, completely dead? Um, yes. But I think, you know, these voters don't necessarily go away. And I think that this, this has been part of the problem. No, they didn't take any of the regions, but we're still talking about six or seven million votes, certainly in, in those elections where she took none of the regions. I just Did think you- that there's a difference between you know, seeing off these parties and actually dealing with a voter base that is, frankly, feeling completely marginalized. But let's explore this a bit more. Imagine that she is up against Amon. What happens then? It's close to impossible as I can think of. It's almost impossible, right? Almost. (laughs) But do you think that Macron is a good candidate to beat her or a bad candidate to beat her? I think if I had to invent a candidate to beat Marine Le Pen, it wouldn't necessarily be the kind of candidate I would want. Mm. Because, you you know, you'd have to come up with a... Probably a pretty distasteful figure. Somebody like um, Sarkozy or Bernard Tapie, for example, who's a, a bit of a crook, um, who actually took on Le Pen father, and you know, and actually did really quite well against him. You know, uh, pegged against him in a debate. I think he's a good candidate in terms of being able to pull people into a, a centrist position, and therefore it will minimize abstention. I think that's the key point, because with Trump it's Clinton, wonderful. the unknown factor was Trump's support. Nobody knew who would vote for mm. Trump when yeah. they'd come out. Yeah. In the French election, Le Pen's support is a known quantity. We mm. know these people, as, as yeah. Catherine studied them, they've been around for 15 years, more. Uh, Macron's support is an unknown quantity. Yeah. Will they even show up? Because if yeah. in, in polls it's people say... It's the that's the real yeah, threat. People say, I support yeah. Macron, but I won't necessarily vote. Well, I won't necessarily vote, vote for him. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether also, if it, if it is Macron-Le Pen, I mean, it is always slightly difficult to do these grand generalizations from one country and say, OK, this is the international theme that unites everything. But, but you could argue that maybe we're going away, as in the Netherlands, from a sort of traditional left-right politics to a more sort of nationalism versus globalism politics. Mm. Of course, uh, in Germany, the left-right politics still... Yeah, well, Germany's the sort of last yeah. normal country standing on <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Want to expand on that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you only have centrist politics I think, in Germany. Because I think people just in this hype over Europopulist, mm. which we're not really part of, but, but in this hype, I think people also confuse Germany and what's going to yeah, happen they, with Germany and AFD and mm. their chances there are truly... no. Yeah, and, and it was interesting discussing with the Dutch, actually, when the AFD started emerging, and the, a Dutch politician I know said, uh, you know, we in, we in the Netherlands said that we would be inoculated by history from the rise of yeah. populism, but actually it's proved not to be true, you know, Wilt is doing quite well. And that when she heard the Germans saying, oh, well, we're inoculated by history from this kind of thing, she was worried that actually it wouldn't be true there. But I touch wood, you know, for the moment it... it I mean, it will still be a moment when... when it will be a moment. If, if the AFD, they'll, they'll have uh, seats in the Bundestag and all of that. Although so. the best yeah. thing that happened in the last few months in politics is when the AFD started discussing Hitler and, and maybe he wasn't so bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 they were good, you know, people only talk about the bad sides, but of course there are also many good sides. <laughs> once, once a far-right party is engaged in that conversation, you can just... <laughs> although, I mean, you know, what, it's, it's amazing how 
thick and fast these things come because at the beginning of the year we were all obsessed with Austria and that was very close. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, a far right candidate yeah. got to like forty nine percent for the presidency, mm. and they're going to have uh, parliamentary elections well, in about a year's time. Yeah, and it was the Green who won, wasn't it? Yeah. Austria and the Greens have done well in um, in the Netherlands as well. Yeah, yeah. there is a kind yeah. of young yeah. vote which yeah. in America didn't really have an outlet because you had a candidate on the Democratic side who was calculated to turn off young voters. Mm-hmm. And well, in, it, it was all the Bernie Sanders votes. Yeah, they would. Yeah. Those people yeah. would have come out probably much more for Bernie. Whereas in France and in Holland, you have candidates who can rally that young vote. And Schulz is apparently doing that in Germany, although you know he, he's hardly a kind of charismatic young. So, what's young your hero. prediction for Germany? I don't know. It's too far off at the moment. Yeah. But I mean, I think that Schulz's weakness, if Merkel does it, is that he looks like he's willing to go for euro bonds and common European mm-hmm. debt. And there's a reason Merkel opposed that for a long time, is that it's not very popular, and Germans are very suspicious of where that might take them. So I think she will portray him, if she's got the sort of ruthlessness to do it, as the guy who'll give all your money away to the Greeks and the Italians. Does the election of Trump have any real impact in Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think it might turn out to be a liability for Wilders and for Le Pen, because I'm told even Le Pen voters don't like Trump. Mm. And yet, clearly, there's been a sort of nationalist international formed in which, I mean, one, again, I refer to that sort of Trump rally. It was really weird where he, would, he was saying, there's going to be a whole lot of Brexit round here in a week's time. And what? You know, but, <laughs> so he saw himself as a link with Europe. Yeah. Well, know, because then, he was trying to draw And then Brexit. Le Pen, rather pathetically, is photographed having a coffee in the lobby of Trump Tower. <laughs> I'm not sure she actually saw anybody. but So there is this link. And talking to some French parliamentarians a few weeks ago, I actually asked, has Trump helped Le Pen? And they said, oh, yeah, we think so. But then others said, no, you know, maybe it's actually damaged her because he's not a popular figure. But I think that's a huge difference between Le Pen and Wilders because Le Pen wants to be president of France. And Wilders wants to be an international player, like yes. Farage has become now, where you're kind of very influential in the crazy far-right movements. And so Wilders was very excited about Trump because here were people who were close to him who he could meet and become buddies with and then yeah. give talks for money. Because if you're a Dutch far-right politician and you have a ceiling of 15% and nobody else wants to go in government with you, you don't have a political career in Holland. Yeah. What you have is a platform where you can talk to neocons in America and Israel and become you know, mm-hmm. kind of a player. And Le Pen's not interested in any of that stuff. She can't even speak English. No, and it, it, it was very interesting to follow her media appearances immediately after Trump. And you could see that she was playing real dog whistle politics. So that if it was a crowd, say she was on on television, on French national news, she reverted to talking an awful lot about climate change. So, you know, really signaling that, you know, she wasn't crazy like Trump, essentially, was the (laughs) subtext, right? I, I actually believe it's happening, and I actually believe that we might actually have to do something about this. But the narrower the channel, the narrower the media, the more focused on her supporters or on the people that she potentially thought were soft support, then her stance was more congratulatory. She congratulated Trump quite publicly <coughs> immediately afterwards, but then she played a much more calculated game. And she said it's a, it's a new age is dawning yes, and all of that. Exactly. And then she played a, a more calculated game. And it was very interesting because everybody said, why is she on about climate change all of a sudden? And right. it was quite clear that it was a reaction. She was trying to distance herself. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, the only thing about, about Le Pen compared to the others is I remember the first time I ever met Wilders was shortly after all these murders, and I was talking to him about Le Pen, and he said, oh, I couldn't ever work with her. You know, she's way off to the right. He's now far to the right of her, yeah. at least rhetorically. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
because she wants to govern, yeah. and he just wants to make noise and get attention mm. yeah. for a tweet. I mean, she would never yeah, say something a, like, I'll ban the Quran. You know, well, that, that was kind of line one of his program. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he has to keep upping the ante. I mean, if you've been a far-right mm. leader for 11 years, you have to keep going more radical mm. in your statements. And so you end up with, we're going to ban the Quran. Does that mean you're going to go search people's homes for it? Comes that, that's what yeah. Rufus said in the debate, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Where's Le Pen has kind of stayed with Well, I want to go back to the point about the diabolization. To what extent do you think that she's managed to clean up her language, but also to convince people who would not otherwise have been convinced by her policies that she is more mainstream? I think there were always two quite distinct currents in the Front National in France, so that the party imploded in the mid-2000s under the strain of some people in the party really wanting to keep it an extreme right party, a far-right party, including Le Pen father, and then others saying, no, we just want to be a big party of the right, you know, a little tougher, but we really want to be a mainstream party. And whereas her father made the very explicit choice of staying on the robust far right, she clearly made the explicit choice of moving along the spectrum of trying to make alliances and and so on. Having said that, what's really interesting is that her close advisor thinks like her, etc., but actually, you know, her niece is a completely different kind of politician. So it's a party that... Over the past few years, it has made a decision to try and be the party of the right in France, but at the same time, it caters to different types of voters, and it actually now does have the personnel on the ground to differentiate itself. So it talks one way in the north of France, it talks a different way in the south of France. One of the issues that this raises that others have raised is whether or not they can actually, in an era of mass media and Twitter feeds, you know, can you continue to really basically talk out both sides of your mouth? But given that people live in their own little social media Doesn't seem silos, to be a problem with Donald Trump. Exactly. But. It's not actually exerting any pressure. So I think it has worked, and I think it's worked partly also because it's it's her. But it's also worked because the party has grown and professionalized, in, in a sense. Yeah. They've been able to do that. Catherine Fieschi ending that discussion and perhaps previewing future podcasts on the French presidential election. But that's it for this. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Week And until next week, goodbye.